Here we are, CKLN listeners, on October 2nd, 2007. I have the absolute privilege of speaking with Mr. Alan Watt, a Canadian national treasure and gift to the world, at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Uh, Mr. Watt, I hope you're not bothered by flattery. Uh, I really do love your work. And uh, your thoughts on sort of where we are today and how we got here? Well, how we got here is the most incredible journey because we got here through uh, about 100 years of planning <laughs> Uh, by big foundations in conjunction with big business, which really were one and the same thing. The foundations were in bed from the beginning with international corporatism. And they planned uh, and wrote about it, too. They planned about a tripartite world uh, 100-odd years ago and uh, how they would get there through creating big institutions and foundations, which, remember, they outlive any one generation and they have a mandate. Therefore, they can go on for many generations with the same mandate and bring it all to pass. And then you go into the 1800s where Britain uh, looked towards this up-and-coming thing called democracy, which they thought was uh, going to be a nuisance because uh, with all the arguing and infighting, they'd never get their big plans made. Therefore, they had a parallel government set up, uh, chartered by the British Crown. Uh, one of the groups was the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, which took over the mineral and, and uh, the diamond rights and gold rights of Africa. But they also had ones for India and other parts of the world, uh, and for, for Americas too. And then at the beginning of the First World War, they had the, the League of Nations. Now, that, that was pushed by all the members of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, the big British crown organization with its American counterpart, the Council for Foreign Relations. And they wanted a global government set up with three trading blocks, a united Europe to be first, followed by a united Americas, and then a united Far Pacific Rim region. And they set up organizations to bring all that about. Now, I don't know if you saw the CBC News uh, in 2000, um, in fact, this year, uh, since 2005, 6, and 7, they found that the presidents and prime ministers of the Americas have got together to further integrate the NAFTA amalgamation. And uh, for the first time this year, the, the Council on Foreign Relations came out as a non-governmental body admitting that they drafted up the legislation for the integration for the Americas and gave it to the governments to sign. Now, where is the democracy here? Absolutely. And, uh, and with respect to that, uh, it seems to me like the shadow government is the key to this. Uh, people need to understand that. Can you, can you explain to people who don't believe that there is a secret bureaucracy that truly controls leaves of power who they are and, and how they operate? Well, what they did, and, and Margaret Thatcher explained this in Massey Hall in, in Ontario uh, about 1991 or 92. She gave a lecture entitled uh, The New World Order, and it was published on a Sunday in the Toronto Sun, and I was amazed that it even got into print. I think the editor must have been off that day. But it was a, a closed forum, basically, for um, roundtable members. That's part of, of the Council on Foreign Relations. Is they call the Roundtable Society. They do the debating and, and find out ways to, inter to actually put all this stuff into plans and make it work. And Margaret Thatcher said, we, the retired politicians, never leave government. She says, we are the parallel government. 
She says, with all our years of experience, we know all the other prime ministers and premiers of all countries, and we therefore form uh, another government, a parallel government that's not responsible to the people, and therefore, because they're outside of party politics, she says, we can plan things and make them happen and pull them off quickly. It's more efficient, and that's exactly what the Royal Institute for International Affairs was set up to do a hundred odd years ago. Right, and the Royal Institute of International Affairs uh, essentially runs the world through their satellite arms like the Trilateral Commission and mm-hmm. Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, so basically, Mr. Watt, uh, even though most activists out there and, and others, I guess most of the people in the world, think America runs everything, in fact, it's, uh, it's England. It's England. If you've noticed over the last uh, 15 years or so, every major figure and prime minister or president of the U.S. or even guys like Kissinger, vice presidents, uh, go over to Britain to be knighted once their term in office is over. Now, why is it so... Apart from that, it's, it's unconstitutional, according to the American Constitution, for any of them to be involved as advisors, advisors or politicians and take foreign titles, yet they've been doing this for years, but it's very important for them to go and do so. And we also find that, that even the, the ex-premier of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev, went over and got knighted as well. Uh, so that's the central hub of all of this. And then you go back into the free trade uh, agreements, who came up with it, but John Dee presented it to Queen Elizabeth I in, in the 16th century. He, he, termed, uh, he gave us the term, the British Empire, and he said it was based on free trade, where countries who would come in would have to eventually adopt the same uh, monarchical-type um, uh, system, the feudal-type system, uh, but they'll be given special privileges on, on the duty imports, etc., if they joined. And he also said that ones that came in from the Far East would be given most favored nation status. That was printed in the 16th century. And here we have China today being granted most favored nation status. They haven't changed a bit of this whole plan. Unbelievable. So, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, we're speaking with Alan Watt from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Strongly recommend going there and downloading all of his work as much as he, he lets you, and, of course, supporting him by purchasing whatever you can, um, because uh, regardless of whether or not you look at it now, uh, it may come in handy if the economy collapses and the Internet goes down. So to all the listeners out there, please do that. Mr. Watts worked very hard to get this information out there. Uh, yeah, it seems, uh, Mr. Watt, that, that there was an old saying in the British Empire that, uh, where they talked about how America, uh, they said they have all the bombs, but we have all the brains. And uh, would you say that, uh, that our socialization, even here, even though it seems to be coming out of Hollywood and MTV, mm-hmm. is in fact designed in England? It's designed in England because back in the, the late 60s, uh, they had one meeting, a global meeting, for all the Council on Foreign Relations, Royal Institute for International Affairs. And remember, all Commonwealth countries has its own Institute for International Affairs. We have the Canadian Institute for International Affairs. It's all the same organization. We have them in India. We have them in Australia. Uh, New Zealand and so on, and uh, they had a global meeting held in London, printed in the newspapers at the time, to decide which country, the United States or, or England, would give the, pr- promote the new culture for the global society uh, through movies, uh, big magazines, and music, and the arts, and so on. And uh, I think they held it for uh, two to three weeks, and then they published their findings and said that they decided that Hollywood and the music industry based uh, in Los Angeles and in New York would be given the right to give the global culture, create the global culture through arts and entertainment to the whole world. 
Well, let's talk about that for a second, uh, Mr. Watt, because as you obviously know, uh, Hollywood and, and uh, America uh, is is exporting their culture at an exponential rate. It's dominating. I mean, they have things like the McDonald's theory of diplomacy, where two countries with a McDonald's won't go to war, and that's supposed to be the reason for every country to have a McDonald's. So um, on an academic level and on a sort of plebeian level, uh, it's being sold as the thing to do for world peace, and yet it never seems to result in that. How controlled is it in in Hollywood? I mean, are do, are all the actors we see on TV, all the models being promoted in our newspapers, are they in some way affiliated with with these groups that are planning our socialization? Uh, some of them understand it. Um, uh, Susan Sarandon, for instance, she came out at the same time, the same award ceremony uh, that others came out and spoke against uh, out against the war with Iraq, and she did use the term, the proper term. Uh, that I haven't heard outside the old Soviet Union. She said, we are the cu- we being part of the culture create- creation industry because we are the culture creators, she said. That's how she started her little talk-off. Uh, so some of them understand what their purpose is. It's not to entertain us. It's to do predictive programming. Now, the producers and the writers uh, certainly do know what they're there for. They, there's no problem uh, there. They understand perfectly their role is to create a culture by familiarizing us um, along fictitious lines with ideas which are yet to come, and that's called predictive programming. Um, it was started off in Tavistock Institute in London, England, uh, and they found that they could actually put ideas in plays and in movies uh, on science fiction ideas. And, and we, when the real thing came along in your life, because you were vaguely familiar with the idea, you accepted it much more easily. You didn't question it. And so that's called predictive programming. And you'll find almost every movie that you watch, yeah, it'll catch you up with the usual hero and the heroine thing, the bad guys, the good guys, but there's always a twist in there to do with science or a new type of technology, which we must all comply with, or a future society with totalitarian ID cards everywhere or even implanted chips. This is called predictive programming. So the public eventually go along with this step by step and think it's inevitable that it's somehow normal. Yeah, I suppose we remember certain things that we saw in the movies. I recently saw Resident Evil Extinction, where the British, German, and American elite were hiding in underground bunkers miles under the uh, surface of the earth after having killed most of the population, turned a, turned a bunch of the rest into zombies, and uh, leaving a few stragglers to hunt for supplies up there. And they were just trying to figure out how to get back up. I mean, do you see this as a, uh, as a possible future with the sort of advances in bioweapons and nuclear technology? The scary thing is, uh, the more you dig in, to the big published authors, the people who spoke on behalf of the old uh, global aristocracy, especially the European aristocracy, people like Charles Galt and Darwin, in his book, The Next Million Years, he goes through this uh, scenario, very Malthusian in content, and he goes uh, along with the, the idea of the necessity of culling off the useless eaters, as he termed them, he and Bertrand Russell bo- both belonged to the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and they both called them the useless eaters, those who didn't produce and consume in the society, which have no place in the society. And, and uh, we find Charles Galton Darwin in the next million years plans out at least the next thousand years uh, and how they're going to bring the populations down by using inoculations, uh, which would sterilize the male and the female. Um, the introduction of new diseases through various means, 
and even even upping uh, giving female hormones to males to make them less aggressive, therefore they wouldn't fight the changes that would come. And you find today that the, the xenoestrogen levels in males and females is, is, is skyrocketing, mainly because of the introduction of plastic bottles. They made it very trendy for you to drink plastic, water of plastic bottles, and they give off xenoestrogen. They knew this back in the 1950s that this would happen. Wow, I, I drink tons of water from a plastic bottle, and uh, I have to admit, I'm pretty chilled out. So, um, But Mr. Watt, Alan Watt at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, I'd just like to ask you, for people out there who are listening to this interview, is there a way um, they can keep the culture they are familiar with, they've learned to love, um, and, and not be affected by it, uh, its toxicity? Um, is, there, is there a way, perhaps, if they listen to your podcast on the way to work and, and they kind of get the big picture, then maybe they can look at some of these things from a, a fresh eye and keep certain ideas and throw out the rest because they know they lead to global government and the enslavement of humanity. So I'd just like to ask if, if you can see sort of a middle ground where people can keep the culture they've learned to love. I, I think they can keep, culture is given to us, that's the problem. Uh, in every age, we get a culture given or updated for the present time or for the industry or for whatever it happens to be. Um, from the, I mean, I've been involved in the music industry for years, and I, I, I know what's getting pushed and why they push it, because they tell you what they want, even gender-neutral songs. So believe you me, there's no such thing as even a free music industry. Uh, the, the writers know exactly what they're supposed to write about and not write about. Uh, so you have to really sort out what is real within your culture. And what I tell people is basically this is a war of really the, the mass man led by the global elite against the individual. If we can regain our individuality and accept the tolerance, you've got to, have to be very tolerant to be an individual. Uh, people should be able to agree to disagree without any bad feelings. That's what being an individual really is. And the elite don't want individuality because you're an you're unpredictable. And for a totalitarian, efficient system, everybody in it must be predictable. That's why the, 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 incre the incredible surveillance we're having today and the, the data collection on every single person, they want to know all about each one of you and how predictable you, you, you must be. They do not like individuality at all. Groups they encourage, mass groups they definitely encourage, and they will lead and fund because it's easier to control large groups than than a few scattered individuals. So individuality really is what we have to um, start promoting. Absolutely. Uh, I, I was at a, uh, an event, an anti-poverty rally here in Toronto on September 26th. 107 groups in Toronto got together through uh, the, the event. Exceptionally boring, uh, almost nothing new there. Basically quotes from the mainstream media about what they want, uh, sort of fit, uh, you know, fudging around budget cuts and whatnot and those type of threats from the government. And uh, 107 groups in Toronto could not possibly get that little done, in my opinion, unless it was on purpose. Uh, can you speak to the sort of CI activism, as I like, I like to call it, uh, of groups that are set up, just so people out there aren't confused into taking their natural concerns about a dangerous world and directing them in the wrong fashion? Well, we do know that uh, as far back as the 1800s, Britain led the field in, in this whole respect, uh, since they always planned ahead on a global scale, um, they knew when they introduced a new policy or something that would upset different people uh, that rather than have a grassroots organization actually come into being by itself, uh, they would put out leaders and fund what appeared to be grassroots organizations 
And then most people would sit back and say, that's great, someone else is doing all the work for me. And you sit back and then you, a few years later you look into what they've been up to and, and it's nothing like you imagined. They went off on a different tangent completely. Well, these are the red herrings that they give us. They're very good at it. But I do know too, and I got this from a first uh, a guy involved in this particular incident, he had complained loudly about the corruption in Ottawa and how the politicians all knew that the global agenda was going on. They all knew that we're being sold down the river to amalgamation that health care was to go out the window and all the rest of it. And he spoke out on, the, on CBC about this and said something to the extent that we should all march on Ottawa and do some rather nasty things to the politicians, which is a no-no according to CSIS. And he, this fellow comes from Ontario. Well, CSIS followed him to work every day. He got used to meeting them. He took them coffee in the mornings and chatted to them, thinking he could perhaps wake them up too. And one morning... Uh, as this guy Brian was mentioning to them uh, what was happening to Canada being sold down the river through the amalgamation, uh, the CSIS agent said to him, he says, you don't understand, Brian, we want you to start a revolution. We, we want something to happen in Canada. And that's, right, that's exactly what they do. So even the so-called patriot groups, the patriotic groups are used one day they will be used to start something so that the big boys can clamp down and tell the general public, look, there are crazy people living amongst you and we've got to do something for your safety. Uh, this is what they, they want to do. And they have written about this, in fact, from the top. Yeah. Is there a way, Mr. Alan Watt, from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com for us to appeal to members of the secret government who don't want to see this through, that the fascist boa constrictor uh, will eventually trap all of us. We may be tracked and searched and drugged and chipped, and even the people on the inside uh, to maintain control as they increasingly as they are increasingly asked to dehumanize the rest of us, uh, and some resist. I mean, they'll be caught in this too, won't they? So, is, is there? Yeah. Can you see a way to, to convince them not to go along with this? Some of them on the lower fringes are beginning to see this already. Uh, they see that their own necessity of being with them will no longer be necessary uh, in a few years, and they're beginning to panic about it. Uh, the ones who are higher up within the higher cabinets or ex-members of high cabinet positions, they're different. They, they believe they'll always go on to higher positions within the United Nations. And uh, uh, in fact, some of them already have. But uh, the lower members are beginning to panic. There's even people in the media now starting to question the role. They know darn well they've been there to fool the public for years and give us trivia and nonsense. And some of them are, are getting in touch with me now, uh, which is a good thing. It's a good sign. Absolutely. And, and uh, my friends and I went to a uh, Toronto Masonic Research Group open house meeting at University of Toronto on September 22nd. Uh, it was around 8 p.m. at the George Ignatieff Theatre. And uh, one of the guys went inside. The rest of us were outside with a copy of Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma. And we were talking to, uh, we were filming a little documentary outside and then talking to some of the Masons and visitors who came out to speak with us. And one of the guys was a National Post reporter who wrote an article that uh, heavily referenced us being there. Um, so that was a good sign. Uh, with respect to the media, can you speak to how they are controlled? I think people know the media lies, but don't know what the lies are, and so they get kind of confused and by sort of making up their own schizophrenic realities. 
And yeah. uh, and furthermore, um, w- when people hang out with nothing but liars, they get paranoid. So they yeah. say to me, how do you know who tells the truth? And I'm like, mm-hmm. the same way I know my friends and family tell the truth. I hang out with them. I don't catch them in lies. And then I trust them. People like yourself, I've heard lots of times, and you just don't sound like you're lying. Whereas mm-hmm. most people flip between different channels of liars and just assume you cannot find the truth and remain agnostic. So yeah. can you speak to the media control just so people get it clear once and for all? Mm-hmm. Well, the media control, media means in the middle. Remember, they're the middleman. And uh, up till 50 years ago, and perhaps after 50 years, but definitely 50 years ago, people were always suspicious about newspapers and moguls, etc., because they knew their history. They knew that it had always been used for propaganda purposes for, for different factions. And, but today, uh, people have forgotten that. And Zygmunt Brzezinski, who was the vice president of the U.S. for some years, years ago, and who's still an advisor to, to the presidents. Uh, Zygmunt Brzezinski said in his book, uh, Between Two Ages, he says, the time will come, he says, through careful indoctrination, that the general public will come to rely on the media to do their reasoning for them. They will give up their ability to reason for themselves and expect the media to do it for them. And unfortunately, through careful and, and incessant and long-term propaganda, they've been very successful in that way. Um, that's why they keep major news anchormen there for 30 years, 40 years sometimes. You grow up with them. They're your father figure. They look right in your, your eye like Mr. Mansbridge does. And would he lie to you? Is it is in your home every night uh, at dinner time? And uh, you're taught to, to see him as a father figure, an authoritative figure that's, that's impeccably truthful. And it never occurs to people that you're getting nothing but propaganda and you're being misled from the real truth, what's really happening in the world. And that's his job and, and all the other ones. We saw the same in the U.S. with Dan Rather. They kept him forever and all the other big players. And Britain is no different. That's why they're paid such big salaries. And people forget these guys are not telling you what they think about anything. They're reading a dummy board that someone else wrote for them. And they're staring at a camera at the same time. Absolutely. And with respect to the media, um, I, I guess it's, it's hard to believe that they can keep their jobs if they are screwing up by lying every day. I'll let you keep your job at McDonald's by screwing up the Big Mac every day. Uh-huh, yeah. So um, how, how does that work in terms of their control by intelligence agencies? Do you see a separation? No. Oh, no. Uh, the, the U.S. was more forthcoming about having uh, uh, agents within all major media outlets, including the telephone companies. Uh, Britain also came out years ago with the same statements. In fact, the BBC, remember, the British Broadcasting Corporation, the grandparent of the CBC and even the, the, the China broadcasting stations now, because they run them as well, um, but the BBC, uh, for most of its time, never hired anyone, any employee, in any level that did not come from Eton. They wanted to keep it in a, within a certain class control where they believed the dog go along with the same agenda. And, uh, and I think that still stands today. They're all from Eton to, to make sure they keep uh, a centralized control of all news uh, to the British people. And in Canada, do you have any specifics for our, our listeners uh, that, uh, that would reflect? I mean, some of the people that they see, some of the news networks that they see, are there better, worse ones? Are there more controlled ones? Or are they all sort of aware of the same game they're playing and, and, and how they define the two sides of an argument that are missing key facts? Well, that's the, you've got it right on there. They always give you two, the two sides. They give you the two sides of every argument that you're supposed to see so that you don't 
see the third side, the fourth side, the fifth side, and the sixth side, they always give you one or the other, the left and the right, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and, and they give you your opinions. The general public will always pick between one or the other, uh, a choice of two. Uh, but, this, but CBC here, now I had someone from the CBC who was going to do something for me, some artwork, and he was up there in a big department within the CBC. He did a couple of things for me, very small things, and he was going to do a lot more. And he also had a job uh, at night for himself. He, he did the same kind of stuff with a whole bank of computers. His computers all went down. His boss called him into the office the next day and told him that if he had any, anything more to do with me, he would be out of a job and his family would be uh, homeless, basically. Um, so believe you me, the, the CBC is totally controlled and it's got lots of agents within it. Right. It seems like they, they make some nods towards credibility by giving us one bit of truth. But propaganda, as I see it, Mr. Alan Watt from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, is what they all decide to push at once. I remember uh, just a few months ago, the global warming hype uh, was all pushed at once. And even people who weren't watching the news were freaking out on me about it, calling me a Bush supporter yeah. uh, for, for uh, sort of questioning it. And then as soon as Bush sort of caved a bit, they went, see, even Bush knows global warming is real. So they just literally repeated the yeah. nonsense in the media. Uh, can you speak to how... How, what is between propaganda and what is more likely truth in terms of the isolated stories that might contradict the big waves that are pushed everywhere so that people who are completely unrelated are all repeating the same thing? Well, once again, what you've noticed is even here in Canada, and I was in Chapters Bookstores today, and I just glanced at the green section, and there's David Suzuki, a geneticist, of course, who is also a true believer in eugenics, um, who loves furry animals but is not too keen on too many people. Uh, pushing the greening uh, phase, and there's is next door to Al Gore's book, Al Gore, that was just a frontman uh, for this for this agenda, and ghostwriters wrote the book. And then you go back to the Club of Rome. Now the Club of Rome, as one of the premier think tanks for 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 the future, they come up with policies to direct society, and and they work out ways to market the ideas into the public's heads, basically. And in their own book, The Club of Rome, the founders of The Club of Rome admit, and this book is called The First Global Revolution by The Club of Rome, uh, you'll find in there, and I have references on my website to it, I read it out on the air before, uh, they, they said, we tried to find ways to frighten the people into coming together globally and giving up their rights, basically, under a new world system. And so they thought about all the things that could terrify the public because they'd always used wars before for this very purpose. And going global means you have to find a new enemy. And, and eventually they said, we settled on a threat of global warming, which we will claim is caused by the public. That was written in the 1970s. Wow, okay, so this was planned since the 70s. This is, this is nothing new. And, and it's funny, uh, Mr. Watt, that... I, the fact that they started with global warming because it's scarier, I mean, if they'd started with climate change, I know here in Toronto, I think most of us would have laughed our butts off by going, we have four seasons, you moron, and the climate yeah. changes every day in Toronto, so better pack a sweater. Um, it, it, they, but now they've switched from global warming to climate change. Do you mm -hmm. see any cracks in uh, in their approach that we can, uh, we can uh, I guess, exploit? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, what's got me really amazed is how... Like George Orwell said, they take history and put it down the memory hole with every republication. Uh, you find that history goes missing in big chunks. And I can remember going to school, and uh, when I was about seven years of age, we got to geography, and they were telling us about all the different mini ice ages 
that we go through and how they built homes in the 12th century without chimneys in Britain because they didn't need fires. It was so warm. And, and they went back into a cooling phase. We were taught this was all quite normal going up and down like a yo-yo down through the centuries. And But today, of course, they've removed all that from the books. They've got a generation who've grown up with massive propaganda and without the history of geography given to them. So therefore they think somehow have always been the same up until now and it's suddenly changing. That isn't true at all. We go, we go through these many warming phases and freezing phases. And I say, what do you think is between ice ages? Well, you have a warming period between ice ages. Otherwise, you'd have a constant ice age, wouldn't you? <laughs> Absolutely. It's ridiculous. And we didn't cause the ice age either. That big climate change wasn't caused by SUVs or no. our individual carbon put- footprint. And frankly, uh, Mr. Watt, I mean, outside of the fraud itself, even in the mainstream, mm-hmm. um, I questioned uh, Green Party uh, provincial leader Frank DeJong on what the heck are they going to do with the money. Um, you know, I haven't seen plans for an $800 billion giant dustbuster to dustbust the earth. It seems like they're just using our money to make money. Well, they are. There's no doubt about it. These, these are incredible uh, boom times for these guys. They, they just pocket money left, right, and center uh, under a whole bunch of organizations that, that just happen to have a hand in themselves personally. And, uh, no, this whole thing is about control. They've talked about, and now the UN has sent me the books on this stuff just to, to get my opinion of them, of these books, on the new domed cities they want to bring in, very small domed cities, habitat areas where the public will live. However, they want to separate the age groups within these domes. And so you'll have one for the nursery, just like the science fiction writers were writing about in the 1950s. You'll have one for the working types and one for the elderly, where that's the exit-type homes. And I talked to um, a top architect back in the 70s in Toronto. Prince Charles is on this guy's polo team, so so this guy's pretty wealthy. And uh, he showed me a dome city, a drawing that he'd done for it. And I I said, that's Toronto in there, isn't it? He says, yeah. I says, well, I I see the CN Tower and some of the, the streets, but where's the rest of Toronto? He says, oh, it's going to be a much smaller city by then. And so what it meant was that the population was to be reduced. So I, I've already been sent some um, of these books on the dome cities from uh, the UN associations to get my opinion on them. And I haven't got back to them on it, but I, I think they get the, the gist of where I'm going anyway. It's not for me type of thing. But they want everyone to be removed from the rural areas, forced in to these uh, cities, the overcrowded cities initially, then you'll have a sort of soil and green type scenario where we're all crammed together in a big bunch of pollution. And, and then the elite themselves will live like the Soviet bureaucracy did with their dash hours off in the country and their butlers and servants. That's to be the new type of system. So those who work for the system itself in the bureaucratic field or the educational field or the policing field will have their own special habitat areas, high-tech and uh, outside of the major cities. That is the future they have planned. Unbelievable. Most of these people are fairly isolated uh, anyway right now. I don't think they have real friends, just competitors at that level and competitors to move up in this global scheme. Um, so they don't really care about people as is. Uh, so this doesn't seem like much for a lot of the, the super rich. But back to the, the environment and the environmentalists, I'm afraid that I've got a few friends, especially here in Toronto, that... Um, 
want to do their part and they want to, you know, take a, a, a bag to work that's not pl- and not use plastic bags and uh-huh. and grow more efficient this and buy more efficient that and pay eight dollars for a light bulb and all this nonsense. Yeah. Can can you speak to to the sort of history of the environmental movement? Because I have to remind people that when I you know give them a sentence that sort of shatters that worldview, it may not be enough to be 25 years of propaganda, but hopefully it opens up their minds to sort of asking more questions on their own every time they're sold something new. Well, the main environmental groups were set up uh, prior to World War II. That was a main tenant, remember, of Adolf Hitler, by the way. Uh, and before him, in the 1800s, Blavatsky in, in London, who started the first sort of female lodge at the time that became mixed, uh, that was Theosophy. They also pushed this uh, uh, Lebensraum type idea, uh, the living space for the right people. And, uh, and Nature Conservancy came into it big time. In America and Canada, uh, the field was funded from the beginning with the, by the Rockefeller Foundation because, after all, if you want to control people and behavior, you always alter their environment around them. That's the first thing you learn in, in psychological motivation. Uh, you must alter the environment. And therefore, how do you alter it? Well, you, you own the environment. You make the rules for the environment, and then the people will comply and adapt to the new rules until they're eventually adapted all the way into these little habitat areas, which are just, as I say, going to be overcrowded cities for a while until the population is reduced drastically. Remember, we're talking in long-term plans here. Uh, We find uh, Charles Galton Darwin, as I say, in in his book called uh, The Next Million Years, he said that himself. He says this this will take a thousand years to 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 complete with creating a new type of human being to be a more efficient slave. And he had no problem calling them slaves. He says, we've, we've always had systems of slavery in one form or another, and we're simply making a more efficient one. Um, and uh, so they're, they're looking at long-term plans. Now, the war on terror is the main big stick to bring all of these changes for the whole uh, high Masonic agenda, you will call it, uh, into being. And... Um, under this war of terror, we found that guys like Donald Rumsfeld said this might take a hundred years. So he's also talking about a complete change in all cultures, um, all, all ways of viewing life, a completely new ordered, efficient type of society where no one will be born unless they have a job for you to fulfill, a function for you. You won't be born if, if they have no need for you. That's what they call efficiency. And they have written about this. Uh, Lord Bertrand Russell's also written about it. They all belong to the Royal Institute for International Affairs, all of these players. And we find the Rockefeller family, um, as I say, since the early 1900s, started up the foundations to, to pay for all the non-governmental organizations that they would use to push this whole agenda forward, including all the greening-type uh, parties. Unbelievable, and, and people think with 100,000 plastic water bottles at the grocery store that separating paper from plastic at home is going to give their kids a better future. Uh, ridiculous. Uh, but again, it's what's out there. And I think uh, Mr. Alan Watt at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, uh, that guilt is a huge part of it because so many people out there feel guilty, uh, ignorantly guilty, and want to do little itty-bitty things to uh, sort of uh, you know, try and uh, uh, mitigate some of that guilt. Can you talk about how guilt is used as part of this just so that people can understand that they can be empowered by not feeling guilty and by just simply looking up and seeing who really guilty people are? Well, one of the best mentors on this whole thing was, was Jax E. Lull. And Jax E. Lull 
uh, wrote many books. Uh, he worked for the big boys himself. He understood mass psychology, and he was going through all the motivation uh, or, or factors that affect humans, the, the types of strong drives that can be utilized. But he, he said at the very end of one chapter in one of his books, he said, um, don't forget that guilt itself is, is, a, is a fantastic tool. It's also a very strong motivation-making factor. And so the creation of guilt, that it's your fault. And remember what I said with the book, um, The First Global Revolution by the Council uh, the Club of Rome. They said in there that... Um, uh, they would convince the public that they were responsible for, for, for altering the weather, and they were talking about creating massive guilt complexes through rep repetitive propaganda and the use of slogans. And Bertrand Russell also chipped in, in his books and said they would use the same technique with guilt through repetition uh, and slogans just over and over again. And Russell said we shall bring in the biggest marketing companies on board with our organization to, to market this idea to the public. Incredible. Yeah, I just saw the uh, the cover of Time Magazine's new global warming issue where they said they called it global warming, had a, a polar bear on the cover standing on sort of broken ice even though polar bears can swim. Uh -huh. uh, people can Google that. Go to SeaWorld.org and see they can swim for eight hours at a time, 100 kilometers at a time, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. um, and all the science is bad for this, but yeah, it's a $15 book put out by Time Magazine uh, which basically nickel and dimes us to death in terms of what we can do to prevent global warming without sort of leading to the sort of end conclusion. The glaciers are melting. How much? Mm -hmm. The polar bears are dying. Well, how many? I mean, they don't really finish sentences. So, mm -hmm. can you can you speak to the, the the propaganda itself and how it's used, and so people understand when they hear something that they need to look for uh, the the I guess the end of the sentence. Yes, the um, they really have to switch off. To be honest with you, and I really mean this, the television is such a powerful tool for propaganda. It's right in your home, and it's and uh, it's when you. You go from station to station during news time, you'll find the same format with the same topics all playing at the same time. They never vary because they're all coming from a centralized command. Uh, they come from routers or the AP wireline, which both belong to MI6. That's who started off routers. And, um, and so they, they give you all the only news you're getting. And, and they don't, they bring on experts. Now, Bertrand Russell said, we shall create a nation, a world, he said, where people will be unable to make any decisions for themselves without uh, expert advice. And that's what we have today. If you flick on the weather channel, they'll bring an expert on what clothes to wear for this kind of weather. You know, it's getting that bad. We can't think for ourselves. We're treated like children. Uh, but it has worked. Uh, Russell even went so far as to say, that, that a mother won't be able to change the diaper on her child without expert advice. Well, that's happened now, too. They have courses for this kind of stuff. <laughs> so they have created the kind of society they said they would, and they were quite confident they could do it with the use of all media, especially television and radio and magazines. Unbelievable, Mr. Alan Watt from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Yeah, they've, they've basically erased thousands of years of child-rearing history. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about that? Can you speak to, to the effect on the family this has, the planned effect, and, of course, the evident effect that we can see? Mm -hmm. Well, what interested me was communism and capitalism. Again, the dialectic, the two, one or the other. And, uh, and then I went into the books to find out where the origins came from. And I went past all the usual players that they give you, and it did take me to Albert Pike too, who did, who was the head of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. He was called the Pope of Masonry, and he trained Giuseppe Mazzini, 
which is just Joseph Mason in Italian, uh, to start off the World Revolutionary Party, and the guy who took over from Mazzini was Lenin. And uh, they're all funded from London and New York. And this is well documented, this kind of stuff where their funding came from. Uh, we know that Trotsky, for instance, was apprehended in Halifax and uh, on his way over for the revolution with suitcases full of money. That's in the Canadian records. We can find them quite easily on a search. So I, I said, well, why on earth were the capitalist countries funding communism? And then when you went into the writings of H.G. Wells, who was a propagandist for this organization in London, uh, backed by royal charter by the Queen and, and the King at the time, um, Wells was picked by uh, Professor Thomas Huxley, the grandfather of Aldo Huxley of Brave New World. And uh, they started what they called the Red Tie School for Revolution uh, under the, the, the guidance of Thomas Huxley. And he and other major authors were trained to be authors and propagandists to bring in a form of globalism. And they said in their own writings that they would put the world at loggerheads with each, with each other by creating a left and a right, far left, far right, the, the apparent opposites. But down the road, about 70 years from then, they would, they would get rid of one of them, which would be the dictatorship of the proletariat, and they'd merge the two together for a socialized world, a world run again by experts and groups and uh, panels of bureaucrats. That was to be their ideal world. They called it the third way. And it was so interesting to see Alvin Toffler. His book was being given out free to all the congressional members in the U.S. by Newt Gingrich. Uh, and uh, the book was called The Third Way, The Joining of the Two Systems. And, and we're seeing that happen now, I suppose, uh, with respect to, uh, to communism falling and capitalism sort of dying and globalization being the, the big key. I mean, for activists out there who are fighting globalization, uh, can you give them any tips? We have to understand that uh, these characters are not going to change their agenda by begging them. It doesn't happen. And we noticed uh, about five years ago, four years ago, when they had one of their international meetings, uh, they did let some of the top NGO leaders in, and I knew they would eventually, because that's to be the new Soviet. Now, remember, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, are unelected by the people as well. But here they are getting sort of uh, elected status in, in a say-so. Well, that's what Soviet meant. Uh, the Soviet system was ruled by councils, unelected councils. The only difference being the heads of the NGOs in the Soviet regime were picked by the Politburo. Well, it's no different here. The heads of the NGOs, the top NGOs that are authorized in Canada and the States and Britain, uh, are all selected and paid for and trained, in fact, by the big foundations. They get lifetime salaries. They have banks, their computers, they have pension schemes for their employees. These, are, these aren't grassroots guys at all. Unbelievable, Mr. Alan Watt from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. It seems to me that uh, you know they built this middle class so that they could uh, exploit us and our labor and our and our, our intellect to uh, uh, grow, uh, build them new pyramids essentially. Um, yeah. You know, new new pyramids, islands, hotels, nuclear bombs, and everything else that they wanted. But now that we're here in the year 2007. Uh, if we wake up, there is a chance where we can use the sort of training we've got, technology we've got, and resources we've got to keep it and say, okay, guys, you got us this far. You didn't keep us uh, completely uh, intellectually bankrupt and, 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 uh, and dehumanized and, and sort of, um, uh, I guess, mindless slaves. You, you allowed us to 
express ourselves through art and culture and education and technology. Um, thanks. Now we're going to keep it. Do you see that possibility uh, today? What I see today is, is we, we, we could possibly do it uh, with the right people here and there, scattered here and there. But as you, as you see yourself, um, technology has been dished out piecemeal. Everything we get today is antique and obsolete. And, uh, for instance, Nick Bagage, who basically was the first guy to come up with the harp technology being used in the Americas on the public, uh, was on the CBC here on Wendy Mesley's show a few years ago, showing these little gadgets like the size of a television remote, uh, something you put in your pocket, and he had tablefuls of, of these little gadgets, and he said to Wendy, he said, stand 20 feet away, and he pointed it at her. She was facing away from him, and she heard music in the middle of her head, and this was a, a technique of, of voice-to-skull technology, very old technology, um, but he said that he could, he could just as easily have put a voice in her head. Now, he said, this is obsolete from the CIA. This technology was from the 1950s. So that tells you, in the 1950s, people were still using the big glass tubes in their TVs and radios. We hadn't had the transistor radio even by then, and the stuff that was in this little handheld had to be solid-state microcircuitry, stuff that we only were given about 10, 15 years ago. So they're so far ahead in levels of science uh, that whatever is, is presented to the public at the bottom level is already obsolete from a war point of view and is safe to be sold to the public. So since they have us hooked on their technology, whatever they give us, if you notice, for instance, Windows, how come all computers, uh, one day, and I tested this out, one day they were all XP, the very next day every model and make was suddenly Vista. Uh, that tells you the coordination. That tells you there's no real competition between the companies. They're all getting their technology from a higher source at the same time, dished out to them. There is no free competition in this area whatsoever. We have the illusion of competition to make us think we're still free, but in reality, we're not. The CEOs, interestingly enough, of these companies, Toshiba and Sony and all the big ones, you, how come they can leave one company with its 50 years of planning and investments ahead against their competitors, how can they can leave that and go to their competitor the next day and carry on as usual? There is no competition. It's one big club at the top, and the illusion is for our benefit. So they have the control over technology, and they keep upgrading it all the time. They make things obsolete so quickly on our level at the bottom. Um, It'd be very difficult to to try and, and take over for ourselves and see what's our technology now be very very difficult to do right it seems like they have uh, generations of stuff in the can and they just release it uh, exactly. on schedule exactly that's exactly what they do uh, and a path news an old path news uh reel from world war ii just after d-day uh, one of the, the, the most famous commentators war correspondents from the u.s uh was filming the, one of the beaches and he said, you'll never guess how this is being transmitted to the States. And then the big camera panned away and showed them holding this little phone with a screen on it, which was a cell phone with a camera on it. He said, shortly everyone's going to have one of these. That was 1945. 
Wow, uh, incredible. And uh, Mr. Alan Watt from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Just uh, for people who don't know about harp technology, you mentioned the effects uh, Nick Begich uh, demonstrated on Wendy Mesley. Can you explain uh, how you, I've heard you mention before that uh, they've turned up the harp uh, waves 24-7 yeah. and you can actually hear them on shortwave radio. So can you describe that, name the frequency, and, and, and describe the effects they have on us? Yeah, well, the HARP technology, and this, you'll find this in the treaty to do with weather warfare at the United Nations. Do a search on that from the 1970s. And in there, they went through all, all the things that HARP could do. Uh, HARP technology, high-altitude um, aural research program. They bounce off high-standing waves off the ionosphere and can triangulate them down to anywhere they want in the Americas or abroad, for that matter. And But one of the side effects of it, apart from creating hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, or floods um, uh, was also that they could manipulate the minds or the moods of the general public by putting on a a secondary wave, on the carrier wave. They could um, zone in on the same brain frequencies as the the human brain falls into, and they could either elevate the mood and make you very happy, even when you shouldn't be, perhaps under the circumstances, or make you very depressed, uh, or make you tremendously tired. They could, um, if they wanted to, they could make everyone hear voices in their head at the same time. Uh, stuff like that, and that's all in the treaty that was signed at the United Nations. Amazing. So the details were discussed there. As I mean, these treaties are huge. I know the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs is 22,000 pages and 385 pounds, according to Thomas Friedman in the New York Times, who wasn't even criticizing it, just sort of made, found it amusing. So mm-hmm. um, in these treaties, just so people get this clear, uh, the details of, of what this technology can do, are, are, they, are they outlined? Uh, yes, oh, yeah, they're, they're outlined. Uh, and the basic things that they can do, the earthquakes, the hurricanes, creating hurricanes and tornadoes and steering them to their target. Uh, that's, that's old stuff because that was signed as a treaty, not something that was still to come. Uh, creating droughts, they could, they could uh, kill off the farmers and um, get rid of them by creating droughts or flood, one or the other, and as I say, earthquakes or tsunamis. Uh, it's all old stuff now, it's child's play. And this is a very old technology, as I say, going back to Tesla. And even before Tesla, there was some experimentation going on in the late 1800s by scientists. Amazing. Uh, these are all the attacks on, on us uh, from all sorts of angles. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about chemtrails, which I guess might work in conjunction with HARP technology to uh, uh, suppress dissent, uh, make us docile and, and happy in the face of growing fascism. Can you speak to those? Because they've been, even in the in the sort of conspiracy street cred world, they've sort of been something that people have been afraid to touch for one reason or another. Yeah. And, well, it's, it's an old story. Uh, again, going back to Zygmunt Brzezinski, he said that the public won't think about anything unless the media tells them to, and that's happened, unfortunately. They can get us talking tr- trivia forever, uh, but if they don't mention something that's major, we ourselves, even if we see it, will tend to disregard it. That's how easily this thing works. We're trained that way. And these trails, these chemtrails, have been going on steadily across Canada since 1997, 1998. And if we go into the history of what they could be, and now I know what's in the ones I've analyzed, at least with the, the chemical compounds. I don't know about drugs or whatever, which has also been discussed at higher levels. But um, aluminum oxide is one of the main ingredients in these trails carried to earth by the polymer. That's the bluish haze that you see forming up, up there. 
these were these were initially um, invented by Teller. Teller was the father of the H bomb, and he wanted to spray this stuff across uh, whole continents, maybe the world if necessary, and then by the use of tiny metallic particles in the atmosphere, they could create the, the atmosphere would become a tremendous circuit, and they could use harp pulsed scalar technology. Uh, as a weapon across the whole planet that would affect people, mo- people's moods, make them very compliant and docile, uh, which is also one of the side effects of the aluminum oxide and the other uh, things within. Because the same stuff as fluoride, in fact, is, is, is aluminum oxide. And, um, and using the, this uh, pulsating wave, they could put you into a, a, a very tired mode or a very aggressive mode. Now, the people of Maine were some of the first people to be tested by the U.S. government, uh, on this, they didn't know they were under observation. Uh, all police stations, social work departments, hospitals were all uh, wired to computers, so to central computers to the Pentagon, so they could study the effects over a few months uh, of exposure to the harp technology, along with the spraying. And they found that domestic animals were becoming unruly; they'd bite their masters. Even cattle were running away, uh, and cows were running away at milking time. Um, uh, violence went up, scores went sky high, and then they tried a different frequency, and everyone became compliant and complacent and and laid back. And some, and then then when they went to another frequency, their suicide shot up seventy percent of what it had been over the last twenty years. So and the, this is all documented, Mr. Watt. Yeah, the people of Maine, when they found out, put a lawsuit in that went all, all the way, I believe, to the Supreme Court. Now I don't know what the outcome is. But, however, check out what happened here in Canada at Espanola uh, in Ontario. Um, they took, uh, the, they were getting sprayed every day from the skies by aircraft coming even lower. They were coming across the Great Lakes. And uh, if the first symptoms they found around Espanola uh, were of deer uh, giving, uh, having stillbirths all over the place, over the forest. And then they started to find the women in Espanola were having the same problem. Uh, after pregnancy, they're having uh, stillbirths, and people com- coming down with different kinds of sicknesses, bronchial problems, pneumonias, and so on. And they took it through the through the Ontario uh, court system. They went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada, where it was admitted, yes, you are being sprayed, but the Canadian Air Force isn't responsible because the Canadian government had made a deal with the U.S. that the U.S. would do it for them. That's documented. Well, you know, it seems to me, uh, even though it's a tough challenge, that it's up to our Air Force to defend our skies and shoot anybody who, who sprays us, uh, but they're abrogating that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But well, that's, that's documented. And then check into the 1948 spraying of Winnipeg by flying fortresses, uh, another deal the U.S. government made with Canada, and they sprayed, sprayed the city of Winnipeg for a month, every day for a month at low level with some substances. I think even cadmium was in there. And then they followed the people down through their lives, through their health records, which is easy with a socialist system. That's mm-hmm. also in the, the book by Don Scott from Sudbury. Yeah, you mentioned that. I heard uh, we played the interview this morning here on, on CKLN Radio about Don Scott, uh, Sudbury MP, who uh, mentioned this in Parliament and then was told not to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, any other examples of courageous Canadians standing up to this? Uh, not too many. Most of the groups in Canada are simply fighting uh, party politics, to be honest with you. Uh, again, it takes a, an individual to, to get out of the groupthink and to, to start speaking 
their own thoughts, their own observations, what they've learned and what they see around them. Uh, but no, there's not. Unfortunately, the group think is encouraged in Canada. Absolutely. I mean, I, I spoke to a friend who's, who's kind of aware of these issues in the North American Union and other, other horrible things like that, and yet he still joined the Liberal Party because uh, he just wants, you know, to be with, uh, you know, even when I asked him about his reasoning, it, was, it basically came down to, you know, safe, you know, more familiar, not conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to how the parties are used? I mean, what are the broader themes they're pushing so that maybe we can resist when we see more of their uh, BS coming down the pike? Well, in my lifetime, it doesn't matter what country I've been in, uh, I've seen many changes in parties, who gets in, who comes out. I always say that we don't vote a party in. We're just so disgusted with the last lot, we vote them out. And that's what happens in democracy. We're so sick of the corruption and all the rest of it. Uh, There's only one agenda. There's only one agenda. And uh, Professor Carl Quigley put this very, very well in his book, Tragedy and Hope, He was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he was the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. He had all their records and their agenda, and he was all for it. He tells you at the beginning of his book um, that he was all for it. Plus, you've got to read uh, the Anglo-American establishment by the same man. Now, he picked men like Bill um, Clinton to become Rhodes Scholars for world government. That's what the Rhodes Scholarship is for. And he said, um, it doesn't matter. He says, we encourage the party politics. He says, we allow a certain amount of competition at the bottom end of either party. He said, but we always put our own men in at the top. He says, that's all we need. And that's how it has been. And he says in that book, he says, for the last 50 years, there's been a parallel government running the show called the Council on Foreign Relations in America and the Royal Institute for International Affairs in the British Commonwealth countries. Now, that book was published in the 1960s. Mr. Watt, how does this integrate with this sort of private central banking cabal? We're uh-huh. speaking a lot about foundations. I mean, uh, how did they integrate? Uh, they integrated a long time ago um, when, they, when the British elite brought over the Rothschilds, in fact. The Rothschilds didn't come into Britain and just play a good bet and take over the Bank of England. They were brought over because they were better managers of this system. And we find again, going back into the writings of Lord Bertrand Russell in books like The Impact of Science on Society, uh, we find that he said we must bring on board, he says, the men who understand economics and long-term economics and populations. Uh, and he meant the, the, the global bankers. And he said it doesn't matter, he said, what we have is money as long as the people accept it as money. Uh, that's the first big con job is money itself. It's... it's uh, that comes between the people who barter for a bag of oats and a bag of barley, you know. And the guy who ends up convincing you this money is worth the same amount ends up running both. Uh, so it's a con game, the whole aspect of money. And um, and the, the big bankers, uh, all they do to the banks, like the Canadian, uh, the Bank of Canada, which isn't a bank, as you know, it's not in the blue pages. It's just an, a, a floor of a building where a bunch of them meet together uh, with uh, the, and they are representatives of the lenders, these uh, 13 banking families that lend checks to the world, uh, which allows us to print up paper, but we must pay these bankers back with real goods. Isn't that a great deal? That's all it is. That's the scam, the scam right there. They give us a check so we can print off Canadian dollars, but we must pay them back with interest in real goods. What a deal. 
Unbelievable. Absolutely. And, and it's, I think it's very important, Mr. Alan Watt from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, that our listeners understand this because we do appear headed towards a global depression, recession, whatever you want to call it, collapse of the financial system. I remember uh, I grew up in Toronto, born and raised here, and my parents always told me, keep good credit. You need good credit to get a home loan. And yet a couple of years ago, the bank said, nah, don't worry about it. You know, you don't need good credit. Uh, we can introduce subprime mortgages as sort of one last big cash grab and a uh, pair of financial handcuffs. And as a, as a corollary to that, a friend told me just yesterday that a uh, girl in her, in her 20s that he, he knows just got a 45-year mortgage. Oh. Yeah, I, I've never heard of one of those uh, uh-huh. shocking stuff. So can you speak to uh, what Canadians uh, should think about um, instead of accepting the system of debt and money as obvious with respect to keeping what we have? Because I'd, I'd hate to see a bunch of us lose our homes and condos. Uh, to be honest with you, we're going anyway down the road because the United Nations has stated in its, its treaty, the Biodiversity Treaty. Now, Maurice Strong from Canada was the guy who spearheaded this. People got to go into it and check that out carefully. The United Nations has said in the Agenda 21, that's the agenda for the 21st century, the whole new way of living that they're going to pull off within the next uh, 50 to 100 years maximum. Gradualism, remember, it's done through gradualism. And they said at the end of this, there'll be no private property anywhere. Uh, there'll be rental accommodation only owned by the state. There'll be no private transportation. There'll be essential vehicles only. Uh, this is all in Agenda 21. Find that at the United Nations website. I also have it on my website. I, I downloaded the whole lot a while ago in case they took it off theirs. But that's what's being promoted. That's what Al Gore and all these boys are all about, and Maurice Strong are all about. And Maurice Strong, remember, too, um, has been a big player in this whole movement towards owning the environment. That means all land, etc., for the big foundations. It was Rockefeller that picked him up initially and set him up and then put him into the United Nations. Here's the tie-in with these characters. Maurice Strong, interestingly enough, uh, on a Sunday afternoon when it was pouring rain, and I did turn on the television, shame on me, uh, but uh, I looked at the public broadcasting, and there's a documentary on about Maurice Strong, where is he now? Now, this is the guy, remember, that Bob Ray pulled in from the United Nations, set him up in, at the head of Interior Hydro, and he was the man that um, ended up setting up the process to privatize the hydro industry for electricity ac- across Ontario. And then when they found out he was still getting a salary from the Rockefeller Foundation and the United Nations, and is not supposed to do that when he, he takes a salary from the Ontario people, he, he, he decided to stay on for a dollar uh, a month uh, until it was completed. But he also said that they were going to put big, big um, generators into all big plants, factories, and office buildings for what's coming down the pike in the near future. Well, that was, that was the, the early 90s he was talking about that. They knew darn well they were going to start bringing down all energy consumption back then. And, and starting with brownouts to train us that, that everything's just falling to pieces and to get us used to consuming less energy and once again to force people into the overcrowded city areas where they'll, 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 they'll put on special grid lines, etc. to keep it all going. This is how they have to train us. So Maurice Strong is a big player. And on this afternoon documentary, it's just, where is he now? Well, he was over in Beijing, China, working at a United Nations building that they'd built for him. The United Nations had built for him to do with free trade 
and bringing the commerce from China over to the Americas. And while they were doing the document, the, the documentary, they, they followed him to a graveyard in Beijing to, to visit his aunt, who was married, uh, buried next to Ma Tung, And it said right on the gravestone, beloved friend of Ma Tung and chief advisor. Wow, greatest, uh, one of the greatest mass murderers in, in human history. For communism, yeah. And here he is, a guy who was picked up by the top catalyst, the Rockefeller family, and put to the top. They ran both sides, you see.